Because all of me loves all of you. Love your curves and all your edges, all your perfect imperfections. Give your all to me, I'll give my all to you. You're my end and my beginning. Even when I lose, I'm winning. So I wrote that song. Um, <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. You probably know the song, John Legend, All of Me. Um, I, I, I'm a fan of love songs. I'm a fan of soppy, good love songs, as long as the lyrics are well-written and poetic, like that one, okay? Um, if they're good, then you can read the lyrics without singing and hearing the music, and it would still be beautiful. Um, here's another one for you. Um, fairly recent, oh, I don't know, <laughs> anything in the last 10 years fairly recent. This is about 10 years old. How about this one? Heart beats fast, colors and promises. How to be brave. How can I love when I'm afraid to fall? But watching you stand alone, all of my doubts suddenly goes away somehow. I have died every day waiting for you. Darling, don't be afraid. I have loved you for a thousand years, and I'll love you for a thousand more. Love, another lovely, beautiful love song. Now, if you're a fan of love songs, then it really doesn't get better than the K-pop supergroup BTS. If you thought those love songs were good that I just read out, wait till you hear some of their lyrics, and English is even their second language. This is from their single, Coffee. <laughs> baby, baby... You're a caramel macchiato. Your scent is still sweet on my lips. Baby, baby, tonight. Brilliant. How about this one? How about this one? From the single, Where Did You Come From? Your face is so small and pretty. You look fresh like a salad. <laughs> so smooth. Did you eat? I'm not just hitting on you. Want to get a cup of coffee? Is coffee okay? <laughs> they like coffee. Pretty eyes, pretty nose, you're so pretty. Just looking at you makes me happy. But where did you come from? You're so pretty. Wow, I mean, you, you understand why, why they're the biggest boy band currently, right? Because <laughs> they're so good. I'm, I'm just joking. I actually put that in this morning because I knew my daughter would be listening to it and I wanted to make fun of a group she liked. Um, <laughs> Okay, love songs, love songs. Why am I telling you about love songs? Well, in the Old Testament, in uh, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, God wrote his people a heartfelt love song. Let me show you the words of that love song. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. It's a beautiful love song. And you see how it relates to Mark chapter 12, right? This is clearly the background to Jesus' parable that Monique just read for us. The language is the same. The image is the same. Even some of the details are the same, like the 
walls and the watchtowers. This is what Jesus was referring to, the love story between God and the vineyard and God and his people. Now, um, Mark chapter 12, we've got Jesus' last parable in Mark's biography of Jesus. A parable is, is sort of a, a metaphorical story with hidden meanings. And this is the, actually the only parable that Jesus tells in this second half of Mark. If you remember, Mark is divided pretty neatly into two halves. The first half, chapters 1 to 8, answers the question, who is Jesus? Right, who is Jesus? And it's much of a mystery until the turning point, chapter 8, you find out Jesus is the Messiah, God's promised King, the Savior. And then the second half of Mark from that point onwards answers the question, well, what does it mean for him to be the promised King, the Messiah, the Savior? the Christ. And this parable takes place in the second half. In fact, in the last week of Jesus' life, as I talked about last week. And so because it's in the second half, it's related to that bigger question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And so this parable, as we work through it, is going to reveal the heart of the gospel, the good news as it relates to Jesus being the Messiah. And it's going to reveal, because in the background is this love song, it's going to reveal the heart of God. So let's pray and let's um, have a closer look at it. Father God, we pray that as we delve into Jesus' famous last parable in the Gospel of Mark, we might see where you are, where we are, and most importantly, where Jesus is in this story, that we might see into your heart and the good news you have for us in Jesus. Amen. Um, the parable can actually be divided into three key moments, and each key moment hangs around one of the direct quotations or the direct speeches um, of a character, or later on we'll also see a quote from the Old Testament. So there's only three of them. And so three key moments, if you want to follow on your bulletins, points one, two, and three. The first one um, is the, the, the longest section, and it leads us to the first quotation, which will be the words of the master of the vineyard. So that whole first section, um, it's point number one, the master's love. I think that's what we're highlighting. So come and have a look with me again. Um, we're going to look at verse one. Let me just read some of the parable again. Chapter 12, verse one. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine pressed, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Uh, as I said before, the language is very clearly, right? It's picking up on the love song of Isaiah chapter 5. And so there's no doubt in our minds what this vineyard stands for. Like in Isaiah 5, the vineyard is the people of God in the Old Testament. The Jewish people, Israel. That's who the vineyard is. So like Isaiah chapter 5, we want to see the love song as the context behind the metaphor of the master and his vineyard because God is the master. And as the master of the vineyard, he loves his people. You see that in the care he tends to his people. He cares for his people. He protects them. He loves them. But like any vineyard owner or landowner who hires out his land, he also expects fruit. And this reminds us of last week, if you were with us, Mark chapter 11, remember Jesus sees a fig tree and it doesn't have fruit and he curses it. It's a reminder that God expects his people to bear fruit. He loves them and he wants them to flourish. And part of flourishing is that they be fruitful. Now, we didn't read the rest of Isaiah 5, but if you looked at the rest of Isaiah 5, you'd see that this love song is a tragic love song. It's a bittersweet love song because the people 
don't bear fruit and God will bring judgment on them. But when Jesus picks up Isaiah 5 here in, in Mark chapter 12, you'll notice Jesus doesn't say anything about the vineyard having problems of fruitlessness. Okay, The problem isn't with the people in this parable. The problem and the focus has to do with the tenants, you'll see in Mark chapter 12. It's those that he rents the vineyard out to, those entrusted with the care of the vineyard while the master is absent. A bit of background, in Jesus' day, there was lots of these kind of examples where land is owned by someone else, uh, usually wealthy, and they would hire others to tend the land, farm it or look after it, and then be able to pay uh, the harvest or percentage of the harvest to the master. It's a little bit like, um, I suppose, if you, um, nowadays, if you, I don't know if you use Airbnb, right? Now, if we go to a city um, anywhere, but last time we went to Melbourne, Airbnb apartment right in the city, one of these new apartments, high rises, and uh, it turns out that it's purely used to rent out, and the owner is likely a rich Chinese investor from China, yeah? So they buy up all this property, and it's usually the kids studying here at university who manage it for them, and that's all they do, and they earn a packet, right? It's a little bit like that. Um, there was a lot of that kind of stuff happening with land and vacated farmland in Jesus' day. Now, if it was farmland, then the tenants would be planting their own crops, and it'd sort of be a season-by-season thing. Every year, harvest, and then new crops. A vineyard is a little bit different. Um, I don't know much about vineyards, but I, I know enough to know that if you're going to own a vineyard, it doesn't, you don't get the best fruit after one year. We're looking at years and years. So the best vineyards have been there for decades. Right, some of the, the best places like the Barossa Valley or the Hunter Valley, the vineyards have been there for decades. And any new vineyard, you're looking at four to five to six years before you get the best kind of fruit that you can make into the best kind of wine. Which means a vineyard project is a much more long-term project. And it's a project of not them coming to plant their own stuff, it's caring for something that's already there. Which again, I think adds to the metaphor. Right? God has His people, He created them, he loves them. He put them there, and he's hired tenants to look after them. And then at the end of the harvest, or probably at the end of a few seasons, when the harvest time comes, when four, five, six years have gone and the vines are ripe and ready, he expects fruit. And so he sends a servant to the tenants, and that's reasonable. But then we get a shocking twist, don't we, when the harvest time comes. Look at verse number three. But then they seized him, that's the servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he, the master, sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another. That one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others they killed. Now, you got the parallels, right? Vineyard, God's people, Jewish people, Israel. The tenant farmers, well, therefore, they must be Israel's leaders. Yeah, that, that's not that hard to figure out. The people who lead, been entrusted to lead God's people. And verse number 12 actually makes that clear. The last verse, um, after Jesus tells this, it's, we're told these leaders, otherwise known as the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, well, they knew exactly that Jesus was speaking against them, right? So that's who the tenant farmers are. The vineyard is God's people. The master is God. The tenant farmers are Israel's leaders, and if you read the wider context, uh, which we don't have time to do, you'll actually see that from the end of chapter 11 
all the way to the end of chapter 12, Jesus is having confrontations, essentially seven confrontations with the Jewish leadership. Sometimes it's the priests, sometimes the teachers of the law, sometimes it's the Pharisees, but basically this is the context in which it's happening. All right, so it's very, very clear that that's who Jesus was targeting and that's who the tenant farmers are. So who are the servants then? The master is God. Then who are the servants that he sends to the tenant farmers, to the leaders of his people? Well, again, that's not too hard to figure out, is it? There's the prophets, right? The prophets all throughout the Old Testament. There's so many of them. And in the story, he sends one, and then he sends another, and then he sends a third, but then it says, he, then he sends many others, right? Again and again and again. And what are they doing? Well, in the story, they're trying to collect the harvest. But in the story of the Old Testament, they keep coming to God's people to warn them, to try and turn them back into relationship with God. They speak to God's people. They at times plead with God's people. And it happens again and again and again. And so we are aware, aren't we, just how patient this master is. He doesn't just do it once, twice, three times. He does it again and again and again. And it really is a reflection of the patience of God. So you'll see Jeremiah chapter 7 on the screen says this about what God has done over the ages. He's speaking to his people. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, and notice this, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants. Who are the servants? The prophets. But they, the people, did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. Um, I hope you read the Old Testament. It's part of God's Word and it's exciting and relevant. But you'll get to see in the Old Testament just how many prophets and how poorly they were treated. You go a little bit beyond the Old Testament into what tradition tells us. Um, and you find out that some of these prophets had pretty gruesome ends. So Amos, the prophet Amos, we looked at Amos, I think, last year. He, oh, two years ago, he was tortured pretty badly. The prophet Ezekiel, he was murdered in Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah, that Jeremiah, he was murdered in Egypt. Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah murdered by the very people they were trying to preach to. How about Isaiah? Well, he had a less than lovely end. He was hiding in a log as the bad king Manasseh was trying to hunt him down, found him in the log, so he got sawn into in the log. That's how Isaiah met his end. Right? These prophets had it tough. You want a job description in the Old Testament that you will not want? It's prophet, all right? And the reason is because God's people, but especially the leadership, the priests, the leaders, the kings, they refuse to listen. But as we see in this story, God, over hundreds of years, keeps persisting patiently again and again, warning again and again, sending one after the other, even though they refuse to listen, they hurt, they beat, they torture, they kill. Now, at this point, it is worth asking, isn't it? Is God trying to get through to you in some way? And I can't answer that for you. You, you know God knows. But there's a chance that there are people here and you know that God has been gently or sometimes not so gently either warning you, 
or speaking to you or trying to get your attention somehow, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not yet. And it, it may be directly by some part of the Bible. It may be through others. It may be through circumstances. Often it's through suffering and pain that we actually know God is trying to warn me. It may be mistakes and the consequences that you're bearing. How is God trying to reach you? And, and if you're not listening, can I urge you to stop ignoring Him? Yes, He is patient. Chances are He's been doing it more than once. And He will get progressively clearer and clearer and louder and louder. But don't take that for granted. Don't keep ignoring Him. Because as we'll see later on also in the parable, it doesn't last forever, His patience. All right, let's uh, keep going. Um, so what next? What next? Well, we read in the story, verse 6, and this is where we get the first direct quote or the first direct speech, and it comes from the master. Verse 6, he, the master, had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. As I said, this parable is structured around these direct speeches or direct quotes. And this is the first one, so this must be important. Right? The master loves his vineyard, but we also find out here the master loves his son. And you, you can notice that with the language. He says, well, it says, he had one left, a son, the beloved, literally. Okay? One left, a son, the beloved. It reminds you of, um, you may or may not know the story of Abraham, when God says to Abraham in Genesis, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Right? When the Bible does this thing where it repeats it three times, you know it's important. It's trying to emphasize the preciousness of the son to the master. See, there is no one that he loves more than his son. And of course, the image is pointing out the fact that there is no one more precious to God the Father than His Son Jesus. Right at the beginning of Mark, Jesus is baptized. Heaven opens up. A voice from heaven says, You are my Son, whom I love. Same words. The Beloved, in you I am well pleased. God loves His Son Jesus. And so after all the prophets and all the ignoring and all the rejecting, He gives His most precious messenger and His most perfect representative. And that's when we get to point number two, the next movement. Look what happens, verse 7. We get another direct quote, don't we? But the tenants said to one another, what do they say? This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, it's not really clear from the parable why if they kill the son, they would inherit the vineyard. It could be that they thought, well, if this master who's far, far away, if the son has now come, then maybe the master has died and the son is coming to claim the vineyard for himself because he's the heir. So if we kill the heir, then there'll be no more owner and maybe the vineyard will just pass on to us because we are the caretakers. Maybe that's the reason why they were ambitious enough to kill the son, trying to take what's not theirs. But whatever the case, um, however it is they're going about it, it's pretty clear that you've got, on the one hand, the master's love, right? That's what we saw in point one. His love for his vineyard, his love for his son, the tenderness of the master. You get the hardness and the wickedness 
and the evil, on the other hand, of the tenants. That's what you see here, right? All along, even with the servants, they've acted as if they owned what, they, what isn't theirs. And as if ignoring and abusing and murdering the servants was not enough, now they're going to take action against the son, the beloved son. And here they not only kill him, like they've killed the servants, but it goes a step further. They throw him out of the vineyard. They treat his body like trash, threw him out, no burial, exposed for the elements and the scavengers. And in the ancient world, that's pretty terrible, <laughs> okay? It's pretty terrible in our world too. They treat him with the utmost savagery and wickedness. Now, as I said, because it's about the tenants, and that's who Jesus was speaking against, and the tenants stand for um, the leaders of the Jewish people, the priests, teachers of the law, elders. It's primarily against them, but I hope you see in their actions and in their attitude, it's sort of a window, isn't it, into the wider humanity, yeah? It is leaders, but it's actually a picture of human beings. I mean, just think about it. Environmentally, um, we have been created to also be caretakers. This world is not ours. It's God's world, but He puts us who are made in His image to take care of it. That's what we read in Genesis chapter 2. But we act as if we own it too. And environmentally, that's been a disaster, hasn't it? Just think about how we've damaged and destroyed our world in 50 years. Five decades, 50 years. 60% of wildlife have been wiped out. 83% of all mammals that have ever existed on earth have been wiped out by human beings. Some caretakers we are. What about the destruction on each other? Well, that's even greater, isn't it? You think about the exploitation of poor all around the world. The concentration of wealth in the very, very few. And the poor who are exploited and taken advantage of and robbed all the time, everywhere. And war and the many innocents who die in conflicts that really are quite stupid and pointless. And then there's human trafficking, especially of women and children, sold as sex slaves often, or slaves in other manufacturing industries. And then, of course, there's the porn industry, which is a trillion, trillion dollar industry. And who does it hurt? the most vulnerable. And then, of course, even in closer to home, the abuse that some of us have had to live with that maybe is in your family. We have destroyed each other. And, and, and the Bible says this is sin. This is what the word sin means. It's not just doing bad stuff. Sin is the tenant's attitude. It's saying, I want to be God. I'm going to treat this world and all that you have given us to take care of. We're going to treat it like it was mine. I'm going to take the place of God. I'm going to make up my own rules. And so like the parable, God has again and again warned us, like he warned the tenants. Hasn't he spoken to us? Hasn't he pleaded with us? That's what the Bible is all about. And then to cap it off, of course, God actually does send his son. He sends Jesus. And when the Son comes, the one whom He loves, the one who perfectly demonstrates the heart of God and represents God, well, what do we do with Him? What do we do as humanity? Well, we find Him a threat, like the tenants found Him a threat. 
We say to God, well, don't you tell us what to do. Don't you tell us how to live. I'm living comfortably. My religion is containable. I'm happy with this. Don't come and threaten that. Don't call me to radical self-sacrifice. Right? Just leave me alone. But Jesus comes and he is radical and he does call us to give all of our lives to God. He calls us to confess sin, to repent. And we don't like that. And so we collectively took him and killed him. Yes, the parable speaks again Jewish, against the Jewish leadership. They were the direct cause of Jesus' death. Now we see that it's going to happen in three days' time. Verse 12, they're going to plot to remove Jesus. Three days later, they actually succeed. They kill him. But really, as I said, they are a window into the whole of humanity because, let's face it, we all killed Jesus. In that the sin in me, the sin in you, that, that I want to be God instead of God, I want to replace God and reject God. <laughs> Obviously, when God comes to us, we're going to take it all the way and we're going to put him on a cross, right? That's consistent with the attitude of not wanting God to rule over us. Friends, just be reminded here that it was your sin and my sin that put Jesus on the cross, the precious Son, beloved to God. You and I may not have hammered in the nails, but our rejection of God sealed his fate. Now, as Lisa mentioned, one of the things we're going to do is the question for God surveys. By the way, the reason why we're doing that is because when it comes to our Invited Friends Month in February, we want to actually pick four topics that come out of the four most common questions you and your friends and family have. So when you ask your friends and family, hey, what question do you have for God? Um, and then when we actually publish the top four, hopefully you can then go back to them and say, hey, you know what, that question that you... We're going to actually look at that. Come to church and find out. Yeah, that's the whole point. So get going on the surveys. It's not for you to fill out if you're a follower of Jesus. It's for you to fill out if you're not a follower of Jesus and for those who aren't yet Christians. So go crazy. Ask everyone because that's your chance to follow it up later on and then uh, go online. Anyway, um, one of the survey questions, um, I, I suspect you'll get something like this. If I could ask God anything, it might be something like, God, if you're really there, can't you make yourself more obvious? Hey, have you heard that question? That's come out of fresh before. In fact, question time. It just doesn't seem like he's made himself obvious enough. And the reasoning behind that is if God made himself more obvious or if he appeared now, I mean, if Jesus claimed to be God and if Jesus came now and could prove that he was God, you know what? I would definitely believe in him. That's sort of the assumption behind it. Heard that before? Right? Jesus 2,000 years ago, too far away. If he came now, I would definitely believe in him. God just hasn't made himself obvious enough. Of course, the answer to that is, well, you think? Because when he came 2,000 years ago, what did the people at his time do with him? They put him on a cross. And so if God did come in the same way that Jesus did 2,000 years ago, chances are we would do it again. Because that's what it's like to be human on a course of rejecting God, and that's us. You see, when you understand the wickedness of the tenants against the love and the patience of the master, and when you remember how much he loves his son and how precious his son is, then hopefully you will see that the next verse makes sense. When the master reacts in judgment after so long, after all that's happened, it totally makes sense. Um, let me show you two chronicles. 
where God again talks about him sending his prophets. And he says, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place, because he loved his vineyard. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath, the anger of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. As I said, Isaiah chapter 5 is a love song, but a tragic love song. And it has a tragic end. The end is that God is going to judge his vineyard. And that's how this story ends as well. Verse 9. After all the owner of the master of the vineyard does, after sending his servants, after sending his son and what they do to him. Verse 9. But then, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. There is a time when God's patience will end. And that's judgment. But if you understand again the tenants' wickedness, their constant ignoring and rejecting of God and what they do to God's precious son, it all makes sense. But there's more, isn't there? Because as I said, there's three quotes. We've looked at two. So my last point, the direct speech quote, the third one, is not going to be from a character of the story, but Jesus leaves the story now, and Jesus quotes, but he's quoting a part of the Old Testament Bible. So look at verse 10. He's quoting Psalm 118. We won't look up Psalm 118 because he quotes it, but in case you're wondering, Psalm 118 is also a psalm that was quoted when Jesus, a chapter earlier, enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. We saw that last week. As the people saw him come in, they chanted the words, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is Psalm 118. So verse 10, back to Mark 12. Jesus then quotes, Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. A bit of background to this. Uh, Tradition has it. I don't know if it's an urban legend. It's not in the Bible, but there's a tradition that when Solomon... The great king was building the temple, the first temple. Um, He needed to find the right stone, or the builders needed to find the right stone to become the cornerstone, the foundation stone. It's the reference point from which the whole temple, and it's a magnificent temple, could be built around. Now, they couldn't find the right one. They couldn't identify the right stone until they looked in the reject pile. And there, behold, there was the right stone, perfect stone found for that. So they put that as the cornerstone, and it turned out that the rejected stone, the stone that everyone threw away, turned out to be the most important foundation stone. So that's the background to Psalm 118. That's what it means. But I don't know if you looked at this during community group this week. Did you see the connection between verse 9 and verse 10? Because it's kind of puzzling, isn't it? Right, Verse 9, judgment, God will judge the tenants and he will pass it on to other owners. Then he quotes Psalm 118 about this stone. What does the stone, the rejected but now foundation stone, how does that relate to verse 9? How does the quote about the stone give light to or shed light on who the new owner is? Do you see what I mean? What's the relationship between Jesus' quote and the end of the story? Well, Jesus spoke to his crowd there in the language um, Aramaic, probably which is a, related to the, the, the language Hebrew, okay? The Jews spoke Hebrew. Um, now, the Bible's written in Greek because that was the common language of the day. 
So Mark wrote it in Greek, but Jesus would have spoken the language Aramaic. Now, it's interesting because both in Aramaic and Hebrew, the word stone and the word sun are, sound a lot like each other. So the word in Hebrew, stone is eben, sun is ben. All right? So there's actually a word play here that if you spoke Aramaic or Hebrew, you would have picked up. The stone is the sun. He's just spoken about the sun, has he? The stone that the builders rejected is the sun that has been rejected and killed in the story. And that, of course, even if you didn't know about the wordplay, that's pretty consistent because every time Psalm 118 and this passage is used a number of times in the New Testament, it's always about the sun, about Jesus, the rejected but now cornerstone. So what's the point? Psalm 118 quote is trying to say this. Even though the son is rejected and murdered, God's plan isn't destroyed. Because the rejected and murdered and crucified son of God, Jesus, is actually crucial to part God's plan. So that God can restore his people, the vineyard. And he can bring them back to himself and put them under the care of better managers. You see? The rejected son is central to God's plan. Not an accident. Doesn't destroy God's plan. It actually is part of God's plan to bring his vineyard back to himself. And really, if you flesh that out, that is the gospel. The gospel is the good news. Because right, as I said, this takes part in the second half of Mark. It's all about what did Jesus come to do as the Messiah? And this explains, doesn't it? Yes, when God sent his son, humanity rejected his son and killed his son, but it was always God's plan because Jesus willingly gave up his life. He willingly went to the cross to die for the sins of his people. In other words, he let their sin and their wickedness put him on the cross so that he might one day on that day, take the punishment for it. That's the good news. He did it willingly. And by this incredible act of love and sacrifice, he extends an invitation for the very people who crucified him. That's why the last words that Jesus spoke on the cross were, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. He's extending an invitation to the very people who put him on the cross so that they might be forgiven and be restored to him forever. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, let's remember that's his invitation to you right now. That might be the thing that he's been trying to say to you again and again and again. And it's open to you today. Come to Jesus. Have your sins forgiven. Be his forever. So then who are the others that God gives the vineyard to? Remember, verse 9 ends in that. How does verse 10 pick that up? How does this rejected stone answer the question? Who does God entrust his precious people to now that it's no longer in the hands of the bad leadership? Well, I think the context points to none other than the son. Psalm 118 follows verse 9. I think that's the most logical way of seeing it. The son... The rejected son, the killed son, is the one that the vineyard's going to pass ownership to or management to. Now, of course, in the parable, and that's why Jesus by this time leaves the parable, 
Because the parable can't answer the question of how the dead son is going to be the new manager or the new owner. How is that even possible? They just killed him. How is he going? Well, the parable doesn't answer it. It's not meant to answer it. But we know the answer, don't we? Right? We know how it happens. That the crucified son can also be the one who inherits and cares for and manages the vineyard. Because we know that Jesus didn't just die, but then three days later he is raised. And the Bible tells us that when God's son is raised, he's raised to be the Lord and master of his people. No more wicked leaders and bad shepherds would ruin his people ever again because Jesus is now Lord. The Son is raised forever to be, in the language of John chapter 10, the good shepherd. The good shepherd who knows his sheep by name. The good shepherd who calls out to them and they recognize his voice. The good shepherd who will not let even one of them escape to harm. The good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Well, to mix metaphors a little, also in the Gospel of John, Jesus is the true vine. And his people who belong to him are the branches. And as they remain in him, they are nourished by him, they're given life, and they bear fruit. Right, so who is the new owner, the new manager? The son, the raised and exalted son. And so as I conclude, let me speak to two groups of people here. Firstly, if you are a Christian, you're Jesus' people, you're the vineyard, let me speak to you. The great news is all of God's people today have direct access to Jesus, your good shepherd, your leader, your vine. And you have access to him through his word, the Bible, and by his Holy Spirit living in you. All Christians have that. Do you know how great that is? Especially if you've read the Old Testament and you read this parable and you know the history of just how bad leadership really, really screwed up God's Old Testament people. But now God himself comes and he leads you. Jesus comes. And you know when you're led by Jesus that this leader loves you so much that he gave his life for you. And so if you are in a place of uncertainty or fear, or if you're feeling lost, or maybe you feel abandoned and alone, just remember you're not abandoned, alone. You're not lost because Jesus is leading you and he loves you. And he will, if you let him, he will guide you and he will walk with you. Now that's easier said than done, isn't it? Because being led by Jesus, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you'll know that it can sometimes, or perhaps even right now, be really painful. And that's when you kind of doubt, is he actually leading me? Am I actually doing this alone? Where is he? But remember that even as Jesus talked about himself being the vine and us being the branches, he also says the vines and branches need to be pruned. Vines need to be tended. The pruning process is difficult. It's hard. It's painful. But the reason why plants get pruned and trees get pruned is so that they can be flourishing, fruitful plants. 
And so maybe you're feeling abandoned, alone, and suffering because this is a season of pruning. And maybe it's now that you need to lean in even more to trust in your Savior, your Master. It's not easy because when sin needs to be exposed, when our faith needs to be refined, it's painful. It's really painful. But if Jesus is the Master and He is the Master Gardener, then He knows exactly what He is doing in your life and He is doing it to make you flourish and fruitful. So don't resist. Let Him, painful as it is, surrender to Him. But you can trust Him because He's there to lead you and He loves you. Second group, to church leaders. Well, you've got to remember, it's, it's very appropriate that today we are officially welcoming a new church leader, one of our new pastors, Marshall. We need to remember, and, and, and this is you if you are a CG leader, a Sunday school teacher, you lead from up front, a team leader, if you lead in any sort of way, let's remember that Jesus is the chief shepherd, right? There really is only one senior pastor, and he's the same senior pastor of every church. It's not me. It's Jesus. And so if you're a church leader, we have the awesome privilege of being his lieutenants. We are under shepherds. And we must remember never to abuse that, yeah? Not to treat this position as an entitlement to serve yourselves. We got to love Jesus' people like he loves them because they are precious to him. And so as his under-shepherds, we need to do everything we can to protect them, to help them be fruitful, and if need be, to give our lives for them, just as Jesus did. Let's pray.